I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode four of the Young Contemptors podcast. This is part two to our Operation Sea Line uh, double episode. So um, now we're going to go on to talk about the uh, coastal and inland defences. Um, what was in preparation for the defence of Britain? So I think we need to sort of wind back to, say, the 10th of May. So this is when Churchill becomes prime minister. So Chamberlain sort of steps aside and this coincides with um, the, the big German advance uh, into into France. So at that point, it starts to become a possibility, a distinct possibility that Germany could well threaten mainland Britain. So Churchill becomes prime minister and within four days, you have the local defence volunteers uh, set up as a um, sort of emergency sort of army uh, to help protect the mainland. So we go forward a couple of weeks. So the 27th of May is another date we need to look at. So this is when the defence executive was set up. So General Ironside, who was um, a veteran officer of the First World War, which I should think is where he got most of his ideas from for defending uh, Great Britain. So he drew on the sort of German def- uh, sort of defence plans, say defence in depth, which was used by the Germans successfully throughout the First World War. And what he did is he sort of created these things which are called stop lines. And they start on the coast. So you have... Um, so a nice picture, a nice beach. Uh, you have on either side flanking pillboxes, which provide enfilading machine gun fire across the beach. You also have uh, beach scaffolding as well, uh, which was uh, laid out and it was, it was quite tall uh, scaffolding. So it frustrated any um, sort of landing plans. So any sort of landing barges, uh, troop carriers, uh, tanks trying to get, get ashore, they'd have to destroy them and battle the way through the scaffolding to get anywhere near the beach. You'd also have on the beach itself uh, anti-tank obstacles, so big, huge blocks of concrete, um, which tanks won't be able to navigate through. Uh, You'd also have huge entanglements of barbed wire as well. But then you had some, not revolutionary weapons, but these kind of weapons which 
uh, you kind of don't associate with the Second World War. So things like the what's called the flame fugas, which is a, a, a sort of oil barrel um, with flammable uh, liquid in, and it's got an explosive charge in it. And the explosive charge would go off and it would pour uh, burning fluid uh, out of the barrel onto the attackers. You'd all, you also had the, um, so it was uh, General Alan Brooke in July 1940, he actually replaced uh, Ironside. Um, he actually perfected the creeping barrage during the First World War, but he actually stated about uh, using poison gas on the beaches and the fact that you know he he was going to use bombers to drop uh, mustard gas on uh, the troops who were trying to land, uh, use crop sprayers as well, and he very much intended to use mustard gas to uh, frustrate the enemy from landed uh, landing on the actual beaches itself. Now, moving inland, so if the enemy had landed and they managed to force their way inland, they would have to go on to further stop lines. So you had the General HQ stop line was the big uh, stop line which was located uh, sort of inland, and it, it ran from uh, from the west of round uh, sort of Bristol Way all the way over to London, and then it shot its way uh, north. And that was built along natural defences. So uh, if you think of like rivers, uh, obviously canals, which are man-made, but also um, sort of uh, ditches, natural ditches that, that, that sort of uh, obviously on the landscape and uh, areas of high ground as well. So the reason why they did that was because they were, they were mindful of the fact that the Germans um, used blitzkrieg tactics and they relied heavily on their tanks. So if you could use rivers um, and canals and uh, you know natural ditches, etc., it meant that they wouldn't be able to put the panzers across them. They'd struggle. They'd use it genuinely as a, as a stop line so it'd stop them from advancing further. You could hold them up and frustrate them. And the reason why they did that was so that the uh, mobile reserve, which was uh, created, so the mobile defence reserve, could come into play and could be called up to wherever it was needed to uh, stop the attack and push them back towards uh, the the coast. Now, in total, it's a crazy number. And if you go out for a walk uh, anywhere in the UK, you'll probably come across some relic somewhere of uh, the World War Two defences. So there was twenty eight thousand pillboxes, uh, give or take a few, which were actually built across the United Kingdom. Uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of uh, anti-tank cylinders and anti-tank blocks as well. Beach scaffolding on pretty much every beach you can think of around uh, the UK. But you also had uh, dummy pillboxes as well and field emplacements. So artillery pieces, which were um, just, just they obviously weren't functioning, but you could actually uh, look at them from the air view in the Luftwaffe and taking photos. You could see, oh, actually, these guys are very well defended, whereas in reality, it was a war of uh, deception. You also had uh, what's called a nodal point. So a nodal point is a defensive uh, sort of anti-tank island. Um, there's quite a few of them all over the UK. If you want to go and find out more about um, where the nearest pillboxes to you are uh, or sort of relics from the Second World War, you can have a look on the Pillbox Appreciation Society on Facebook and also the uh, EDOB, which is the uh, Electronic Defence of Britain uh, archive. They've got a fantastic... Um, interactive map and you can have a look around and see what kind of defences were near you if they're, if they're long gone and also many of them uh, still stand as well so it's really worth uh, going and having a uh, look at that but also on the coast especially so in regards to uh, defences the um, many of the historical sort of castles and buildings around the um, the shoreline such as places like Langard Fort, Dimchurch, uh, Redoubt, Pendennis Castle as, as well 
they were repurposed. So historically, they've been used for hundreds of years to defend against uh, any attackers or any form of invasion. But they were upgraded and refitted with uh, up-to-date guns and defences and made to be stronger um, because those points were incredibly um, you know, sort of well-protected anyway, but they were upgraded to deal with um, any form of uh, invasion. So the local defence volunteers, which became the Home Guard, so they started off and they hit half a million men and they, they actually rise through, through the actual duration of the war to one and a half million men. So it's a massive army on its own. And many of the guys who were in that were uh, veterans of the First World War, so they drew on a lot of experience uh, collectively and just touched on World War One as well, the six-pounder gun. And many of the weapons from the First World War were reused by the Home Guard and they had many improvised weapons as well, and uh, little uh, armoured vehicles and so forth. So very, very resourceful. And it's probably, um, you know, best best way of saying it is the, the UK or Great Britain is uh, certainly its best when the back's against the wall, as we found out over, over the past few years. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's a quite... Um proud of their effort the amount of the, well the stops were pulled out to for the construction of the defenses and the organization of the ldv and later home guard um and attempting to equip that new force um with arms and armament and be able to make them into a fighting force because at first their main main purpose was to say defend like airfields and and them sort of areas and do little patrols and later because with the with the Home Guard, the idea was sort of very actually very early on in the war in 1939. But it because of the there was seemed as no threat of invasion, they were sort of like brushed under the carpet and and shelved for a later time. So with the now the fall of France and now with the formation of the LDV, it was that case of like we need to get this done and dusted. And by the time of the invasion, they were very they were fairly well equipped. Obviously, not everyone had a rifle. But they had the arms and armament to um, put up a, a decent fight. Um, so yeah, yeah. Touching on like the sort of home guard as well. My, one of my favourite subjects is the auxiliary units, and the auxiliary units for anyone who doesn't know, they are um, very secretive um, sort of uh, units which live uh, in underground bunkers. Very secretive. The guys who were in it were typically gamekeepers, farmers, poachers, all these kind of people. And they were sworn to secrecy. Even their wives and family didn't know what they did. So an auxiliary unit typically consisted of about six men. And they had what's called an operational bunker. And this is typically an underground bunker. And they would have supplies to last two weeks in there. So the auxiliary units would come into being. So if the, uh, if the Germans invaded, they would um, spring into action. They would let the initial advance roll past them. Then they come out of their, uh, their operational control bunkers and they would um, wreak this kind of guerrilla secret war on the Germans. So they frustrate um, sort of resupply lines. They blow up railways. Um, but, you know, they were, they, there's no, making no bones about it. These, these guys were cutthroat killers. That's what they were trained to do. Um, they used a Fairburn Sykes uh, fighting knife. They had they were equipped with revolvers, explosives, um, you know, time pencils, all these kind of uh, fantastic equipment. They were among the first to get the Thompson submachine gun and then the Sten um, as well. So really well, well, well uh, equipped as well. Fantastic uh, unit. You also had the special duty section as well, which were, was a kind of secret 
a radio network across the whole of the UK. And you had uh, publicans in this network. You had um, school teachers. Uh, you had even members of the police were in it as well. Um, but again, highly secretive. And the existence of these units was not mainstream public knowledge until the 1970s. But the auxiliary units themselves would have wreaked absolute havoc on uh, any, any form of attack uh, that came through and passed them out of their operational bunkers. And you had about three and a half thousand men trained up as the auxiliary units and testament to their training and skill. These guys were actually recruited uh, by the SAS in 1944. So on standout in 1944 post uh, D-Day, these guys were being picked uh, to go and join the SAS because their training was just so good that they were just overly qualified for the role. And in fact, shortly after, uh, well, in the lead, lead up to and after D-Day, many of these uh, stay-behinds, as they're also called, uh, the auxiliary unit members, they actually protected the, um, the Pluto line um, on the Isle of Wight uh, from enemy commando attacks, such, again, is testament to their training. No, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's such an interesting part of history, and it's, um, it's something you don't hear about all the time. And these secret units, they were, as you said, they're very secret. Obviously, they're secretive, and their families didn't know, their friends didn't know, and um, I, I think you told me in the past as well. Like their their first, they had a hit list as well of who they were to take out in their area, who was possibly a would be most likely to collaborate, or um, who was most threat, and also um, uh, whoever was the closest living to their um, to their hideout was one of the people who was first on their list to be um, removed, which is kind of a. Uh, Kind of a dark part of our, but of a possibility that could have happened, really. That's right. So, in, in these bunkers, they had enough food to last two weeks, and they also had a barrel of uh, well, a jug of rum, which was only to be opened on order. And uh, they also had the infamous letter. And the letter is rumored to have contained, and I say that because there's no extant copies, but it makes total sense. So, for the guys to join the auxiliary units, to join an operational patrol. The, uh, the chief of police had to actually um, sort of sign you off and say this man is of you know uh, good character and he's okay to join, he's got no criminal history. But obviously that chief constable would have known of the existence of this operational patrol and also the names of the men who were in that patrol. So if the Germans came through and took control of the police and said, well, you know, who, who are these people who were going around blowing up our railway lines and destroying our uh, you know, petrol tankers, et cetera? Uh, who are they? Well, the chief constable is potentially going to, you know, sort of blub those names out. So one of the first things they had to do was rub that person out, that chief constable, they'd have to exterminate them. And they were issued with a 2-2 sniper rifle for that purpose. Um, and also anyone who lived nearby. So there's a story down south where uh, an operational patrol uh, was, was in their bunker and uh, a farmer's wife um, was aware of their presence and saw them going into the bunker. And they had to kind of say to themselves, well, you know, if if the you know if this does happen and the Germans evade, we're going to have to exterminate uh, that family because they know of our existence. We can't have them giving our patrol base away. Um, but yeah, these guys, amazing story. It hasn't been told enough. Um, anyone who's interested in learning more about the auxiliary units and the special duties sections, go on to uh, Stay Behinds. Just Google Stay Behinds because it's a it's a fantastic resource. Uh, and funnily enough, um, one of my uh, pals, who's obviously a lot older than me, his, uh, his uh, father actually served in one of the scout sections 
during the Second World War. He was in the Royal Warwickshire uh, Regiment and he uh, was based down in Hampshire as part of one of the scout sections. He actually went to join uh, the SAS in 1944 on standout and served through, um, through Holland, uh, Germany and also Norway as well. So again, it's just testament to the, to the quality of training that these cutthroat killers had. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And it's such an interesting story. Going for a little while now. So we're going to now break and we're going to hear a word from our sponsor. Here at the Young Contemptibles podcast, we are very honoured and proud to be sponsored by Quartermaster Stores, a UK business specialising in bespoke leatherwork, footwear and historical clothing for living historians. Whether you are an old hand or a complete beginner in the world of living history, there really is something for everyone. And what's even better is that listeners of this podcast are entitled to a 5% discount. Simply use the code QMCAST5, that's QMCAST5, at checkout when shopping on quartermaster-stores.com. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the uh, second part of episode four. So we've been talking about Operation Sea Line, and we've covered pretty much every single aspect of the uh, the whole plan. But we have to ask ourselves the question, or more importantly, ask Jake the question, what ultimately stopped the Germans from actually launching Operation Sea Line? <clears throat> so there's many different factors to this. You've got the case of... Um, the oh, well, the disagreements between the Luftwaffe, the Wehrmacht, and the Kriegsmarine, um, and they couldn't really agree about how to properly do this. Um, the army, well, the Wehrmacht, as they thought they could get on with this, the navy, the Kriegsmarine, uh, thought it was utterly ludicrous and the stupidity of the whole thing, and the Luftwaffe thought they could win the war single handedly. Um, and then you add in all the political tension of around it and every, et cetera. It was, and then you add in Hitler and it, it becomes a whole cluster of everything. Then you look at the, um, the vessels that were lost, as I said before, um, in the previous episode, um, at Narvik. Um, and it, it really poses a whole new thing. And they lost barges as well. Like, don't get me wrong, the, the, they're able to muster about 2,800 barges for the invasion. Now, these are river barges, and they're not very effective. Um, and they lost several of them in, in actions in in Norway, etc. And they had to like accommodate, uh, accommodate and um, uh, relinquish and basically steal anything they could to get their hands on, really, which could float to for this invasion, which was very slapdash. They did design their own sort of craft, um, different... Uh, connotations like the a a class and b class etc um of um barges and landing craft but they weren't nothing like compared to what you would see later on in the war for like the allies for the invasion say in june husky or torch or overlord or anywhere else or anywhere else in the pacific really mm. um it was very very different um and the germans weren't very used to doing, say, amphibious operations of this scale. They'd done smaller scale stuff in Norway, but that was against a nation uh, which wasn't really prepared for an invasion of that type. Um, they had more ships at that point, and they weren't dealing with a, um, as I've just said, like really a, a form of defence, um, like with any like major pillboxes or anything. Um, and the Germans didn't really um, categorise that when they when during the occupation, really, as well, of Norway 
where it was very lackluster um and especially it was very much shown with the commando raids later on in the war that would very very easily be able to succeed um and also the one of the major factors as well was the obviously well the lack of resources really to undertake it and also because the resources were needed for the um impending invasion of russia um which mm. was hoped to take place in sort of uh, the early summer of 41 which ended up taking a little bit later due, due to delays which was going to be one of the largest invasions in history probably the largest with about three million men invading russia in in uh, 41 so the resources were needed um and germany was going to be stretched thin if it was still fighting a war um in the british isles when it planned to invade russia and it didn't want to wait too long because russia had was sort of recovering after it's uh getting the, basically the crap kicked out of it during the um, winter war um and it was gradually rebuilding yes it obviously had it had major success when it invaded poland along with germany but it was a very very different sort of site to what it would be um in 1941 so they're the main factors that are coming to sort of why the invasion never really took place and also the fact of the Brit- we had won the battle of britain um and it german air superiority was not forthcoming the navy did not want to take really any part in it really at all and uh, yeah it was looking up at that point and then obviously with later after the invasion of russia the americans come into the war as well and the tables turn and about the atlantic wasn't going well by say mid-1942 but it did improve in some bits here and there but yeah that's sort of the main reasons why sea line didn't take place really um getting into sea line itself so <clears throat> As we alluded to in the previous part and uh, the last episode as well, uh, was the war game that was done at Sandhurst back in the 1970s. So basically, they uh, wanted to see what would be the outcome of a German invasion in the, in the uh, in September of 1940. So basically, it would see um, they would. They had several, they had multiple people there during this war game, um, including uh, members of the Wehrmacht, etc., who helped plan it, and from the German Navy as well, the Kriegsmarine, also from the British side as well, along with supporting uh, British military advisors, etc., of the time of the period of the 1970s. And so they were, for the sake of the war game, for the sake of the invasion, basically the Germans have kind of won the Battle of Britain. So they've been able to push the RAF. Um, beyond London, so um, push them back. Obviously, they're still active, still the Bomber Command, and there's still um, different uh, groups. So there's 11 group, 12 group, 13 group, etc. They're all different independent um, fighter groups, but they've been pushed beyond London, so the airfields have been heavily bombed, so everyone's had to retreat, so they can only really defend around that point, which gives the Germans almost like free reign over the channel. Um, So, prelude to the invasion, the Germans would lay thick belts of mines, on each side of their invasion, and it will be from uh, basically from Brighton to to uh, Folkestone, um, and they would land roughly sixty-seven thousand to ninety thousand troops on the first day. Um, the Royal Navy would basically be seeking cover in Scarpa Flow, out of range of the Luftwaffe, but they would set su- set sail as soon as possible. Now. The Germans would obviously have a tough fight on the beaches with all the implements of the British war effort um, basically thrown at them. 
Um, they would have had long preparation um, through, from sighting the invasion. Also, we've seen minesweepers with the radar and everything across the coast. They would have had time to prepare. All the, um, the whole of the south coast would be on alert. All the reserves would be called up and forced into getting to the coast as quickly as possible or supporting at the um, stop lines. <clears throat> so the Germans would land. Um, they would suffer heavy, heavy casualties. So predicted casualties for the first wave was about 50% casualties um, through the entanglements of the scaffold, through possible from the from flame weapons to the use of gas, etc., 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 and just the general conventional arms as well that would be thrown at them. Um, and they would be able to eventually overwhelm the the coastal defences because the idea of you can't really stop invasion but you can delay it the main idea of the stop lines and defensive fortification on the coast is to delay the invasion to give the um, rear line forces a chance to form a defence and to launch a counterattack. so they would force their way inland they were gotten about 10 miles and then close to the first major stop line they would come up to which would be the Winston line um, and they would be fighting towards that and Basically, it would be very, very difficult for the Germans at this point because by the time they get to there, this is several days after the initial invasion, um, the Royal Navy would have forced its way into the channel. They would have suffered heavy losses in, say, destroyers, cruisers, and maybe a capital ship, but they would have used everything at their disposal to get into the channel and absolutely cause carnage. Because as I said before, it's not about landing the troops, which is one stage of it, but it's about supporting, supplying, and keeping your forces fighting in the field. Now, <clears throat> at this point, with the Royal Navy in the Channel, basically destroying anything that would come across, um, cutting off anything the Germans could use for support, um, and the main aspect of, say, the German tactic at this point in the war was Blitzkrieg. So you use their armour, use their Stukas, use all that sort of, those arms of, arms of um, power they had to force their way through anything. Now, the British countryside is very different to what you sort of, well, I say very different, it's slightly different to what you see in France. There's a lot of like rolling hills, etc. especially within Kent area. Um, and there's heavy defences, obviously at this point, you've got ports which would be sabotaged probably by the defenders. So not allowing the Germans to land their heavy armour or armour, any armour really at all. Um, it'd be very, very tricky to land them on beaches. They had landing, they had adapted landing craft and had adapted um barges etc to land tanks on the beaches but it was very very few in number now after a short while all the supplies are running low you're running low on fuel food ammunition and this is after several days of heavy heavy fighting now obviously you have the home guard which is defending each and every village you have the local population which aren't going to be at all helpful to the invasion to the invading forces and then you have the regulars which are obviously fighting them every inch of the way Sadly, though, for the uh, for the Home Guard, they weren't seen as um, uh, legal combatants by the Germans, so they would risk being shot if they were captured. But they would have paid a heavy price and fought for every inch of their um, of their local towns and their villages because that's where they lived. Um, after about say a week or so, the Germans would have reached right up to the Winston Line, and the Brit now the Germans are cut off from all their resources, as I said, and reinforcements. Meanwhile, the British are bringing forth more reinforcements, two whole armoured divisions. There's a Canadian division, division in the United Kingdom at this point, 
um, that had uh, basically, I think, arrived just after Dida, uh, just after Dunkirk, sorry. Um, and it would be very, very difficult for the Germans to do whatever they could do. Now, there's removal of road signs. So the Germans don't know where they are at all. Um, all their movements are being reported by scouts. Um, and it's very, very difficult for the Germans to move without being harassed by, say, the, the Home Guard, the auxiliary units, the local populace. And casualties are mounting. They're losing um, dozens a day, probably to desertion, um, because they're probably thinking this is just ridiculous, this is untenable. They're being bombarded because as they move further than land, they're coming in range of um, fighter and bomber command, which are able to say force, probably force back the Luftwaffe. And as like even with the back, even within the Battle of Britain, all German aircraft lost, and their pilots are lost to the war effort, or either killed or killed or captured. Um, so anything lost over British lines, it's a loss for them. Um, and after about a week, a week and a half, the German forces would be forced to uh, capitulate. But it would be untenable, and basically what would follow next is a catastrophe. Um, the Germans would lose basically their entire invasion force. Only a few probably might be able to get away, but bear in mind the Royal Navy are in the channel. They're being harassed at every point. It would be ludicrous to launch an invasion, judging by the outcome of this war game. And this is, from my opinion, from the research I've done as well, it's very, very likely that this would have been the outcome. It would have been very silly and very stupid to launch this invasion. It would have just meant sending about 200,000 um, German veteran troops to their death. If, say, the invasion had taken place, and this was the outcome, which is very, very likely, probably the most likely outcome. Um, the war probably would have ended much sooner, and there probably would never have been like an invasion of Russia in 1941. Probably would have had to be several years in the future. The Germans would have lost the cream of their um, force that they'd taken into Poland, that they'd taken into France, all their battle-experienced troops. They would have lost. They would have lost a lot of armor. The entirety of the Kriegsmarine would have been destroyed. Um, no invasion barges at all left, nothing for the future. They would have lost a, a, a massive amount of aircraft and it would have been ludicrous and not beneficial to the war for the Germans at all. Attempting to knock out Britain by invasion would not have been a very good thing to do. Yeah, it's safe to say that Hitler was definitely mad, but he wasn't mad enough to have invaded Great Britain because the odds really are stacked in Britain's, Britain's favour. You know, they really got their house in order. And it's a real, I think we've kind of um, myth-busted it that Britain was really, you know, at the greatest risk of being invaded. Yeah, you know, we're at a heightened risk, but actually uh, on, the, on the balance of it, by looking and num crunching all the numbers and looking at the sort of uh, finer details, Britain had, it's fair to say, more than a uh, fighting chance. So there we go, that's up sea line. We've uh, we've done and dusted um, over two episodes. It's been really good to research this. It's been really interesting for myself. And I know, Jake, it's your favorite topic as well you really enjoy it we can tell you're very passionate about it as well so we're going to dive in with a couple of questions we've had so we've had a question on op sea line so it's only apt that we ask that now so the question is and i think jake you're going to be best place to answer this because um i don't particularly know much on this so i'll be interested to hear the the answer so the question is uh, did the germans have a hit list of officials or public figures that they wanted to capture if Sea Lion had been successful? So, yes, they did. So they had the Black Book or the Sonderfund Lister. Um, I probably butchered that. 
so basically the special wanted or special search list of Great Britain. So this was a book containing names of public officials, politicians, people in literature and uh, professors and all sorts of walks of life that were see that were deemed um, undesirable or problematic to the to the Third Reich um, within their invasion of Britain and post invasion and general occupation. So it was planned that this book would be used by the uh, Einsatzgruppen or Einsatzgruppen, so I should say, which were basically a formation of the SS, um, which were used in occupied countries at that time. Um, and they would basically go around with this list and round up those who were on it and either deport them to the continent for work camps, be imprisoned within country, or be basically um, gotten rid of, uh, etc. So a couple of names on that list, obviously there's Winston Churchill, Neville Chamberlain, who's a former prime minister, um, trade unionists, journalists, lawyers, industrialists, uh, cartoonists as well, like David Lau, or Lowe, mm-hmm. I should say, politician, cartoonist, and, and characterist, um, anti-fascists, campaigners, Jews, etc. Um, directors, uh, even like a Paul, Paul Robson, an African-American singer-actor with strong communist affiliations, as well as put here. So all these sorts of different people. And it's it's very, very worrying like um, that this could have been, obviously, thankfully, never it did happen. But this could have been a list that was um, being used to round up those in the, in the spotlight, etc. Either um, politicians, etc. So, yeah. So thanks for the great question. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really scary to actually think about that and to think, you know, the, these people who are part of the fabric of society could just be, you know, sort of pulled out by the uh, sort of, you know, Gestapo and just gotten rid of. It's, it's crazy, you know, obviously incredibly thankful we never got to that stage, but it's, it's always nice to be sort of, um, you know, armed with the knowledge of, um, you know, what could potentially have been. So the second question we've had has come in from Matthew Yule, and his question is, how recent a conflict do you believe that it would be acceptable for a person to reenact? So... Uh, I I'm, I would say that any period is acceptable for a person to reenact. Now, I think as, as we become um, in more recent memory, so if we start looking at, say, Iraq, Afghanistan, even like Northern Ireland um, as well, so 70s, 80s, 90s, etc., uh, they can be quite touchy subjects. I think it's a case of knowing your audience um, with where you are. I mean, you wouldn't particularly want to go and uh, reenact a British soldier of the 1980s in, you know, Ireland itself, if we're being completely honest, it probably wouldn't get a great reception. Very much a case of knowing your audience. But it also depends on the authenticity angle of it and also very much so on the uh, taste in, in you know, what how, how you come about doing it, really. I think you've got to be mindful of that. Um, so I think, personally speaking, I think you can reenact any period. Um, you will always get someone, regardless of the period. I mean, I've even had people come up to me when I've been doing Napoleonic and saying that, you know, the British Empire were murderers and so forth, and we're all murderers and all this sort of stuff. But you'll always get that. You can't please everyone. Um, so it's a very much case of knowing your audience and making sure that it's done in good taste. But it'd be interesting to know from you, Jake, uh, what, what your take on that is, because obviously you, uh, my kind of living history stops in 1945, but yours carries on, doesn't it, to much more recent conflicts. Yeah, no, no, I completely agree with um, Steve's point. And yeah, it's definitely a case of, yeah, um, you know your audience and obviously do it in the best possible way. So it's, it's 
not necessarily not just like tasteful but like you do it justice and you're not it's not trying to get all the part it's like when you do world war ii as well really you're not trying to get all the politics involved it's about like the guys who are there and all girls who were there and it's basically just trying to portray it in the best way possible um and i think any as steve said like any um period is is you can reenact really um and as long as you're going it in the best possible way then i think it's okay i we we both know guy people who do um much older periods or even very very recent periods like either even like say like the early 2000s or a bit later um with british forces in afghan but as long as it's done in informative educational and um uh historically correct way um then i think you you want to a winner really Absolutely. And thanks, guys, for submitting those questions. Uh, we do enjoy the questions that come our way. If you want to submit your own questions, you can do that via our new fancy uh, email address, which is theyoungcontemptibles at gmail.com. So if you've got any ideas for podcast topics or any questions for the Q&A part of the podcast, send them in to theyoungcontemptibles at gmail.com and we'll select uh, a few questions for future podcasts but that does conclude our uh, two episode uh, whistle stop tour on operation sea lion hope you guys have found it informative it'll be great to hear what you think of the podcast so uh, do give us some feedback on that as well all the links to uh, my tiktok channel living history uk jake's uh, jake brain collection on youtube are uh, all below as well and of course if you want to you can uh, donate to donate to us to help us keep the podcast going um, and the link to our paypal is also below but until next time take care and keep history alive when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.